Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. It is by your grace that we can stand before you in your presence this morning. We thank you for your grace of sending your Son, Jesus, to pay for our sins and brought us to life. We thank you for your grace that you send Christ's Spirit, who clothe us with power to do what is right and lead us to heaven where we'll see your face. So, Father, we pray that by your grace, your Spirit will be at work in your people this morning once again. Please humble us before the cross. Please work in our hearts. Remove our selfish pride that we may be those who listen to your word and obey your words. We pray that your church will be built up this morning and that you will be given glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat, brothers and sisters and friends. Well, like what Tim was saying, uh, this morning we'll be starting to look at the book of Luke again. Uh, We've been looking at different parts of Luke in the past two years probably, and now we are coming back. And we will be doing it for another probably four to five months. We'll be covering Luke 6, starting from the calling of the apostles, and we'll end at Luke 6. With, uh, before going to 7th. Okay? So that's where we're up to in sermon for the next few weeks before we launch into uh, Revelation again. All right. So turn with me to your Bible in Luke chapter 6, and that's where we will begin. Well, this morning I want to begin uh, by getting you to think about the movements or the circles you have long and dreamed to be part of in your life. Perhaps think about, think about the uh, prestigious college sweater that you once craved to wear, for you just yearn to be associated with that renowned college. You wish to be part of that long-respected heritage. Or think about the corporate badge you yearn to dangle off your pocket, whether it be here or here, for you want to be identified with the big five in the field. Or think about the cool phone that you each to own, for it brings you into that inner social circle that you yearn to belong to. Basically, think about the different movements or the inner circles you have craved to be part of, you have longed to break into. I want us to think about this because in today's Bible passage, we see Jesus forming a new group. He gathered his members and he appointed his deputies. What Jesus is doing here is a huge turning point in the gospel. Because right here, Jesus is starting the process of forming what is coming to be known as New Israel. New Israel. So if you are someone here today who knows nothing about Jesus, just know this one thing. The formation of New Israel is what Jesus Christ is all about. And that's what he's on about. According to the Bible, this is what Jesus came from heaven to earth to do, to form new Israel. So the question I want to ask with you and to answer with you this morning is simply this. Jesus Christ came to form new Israel. What is this group about? Is it a big deal? Is it just another social movement, another wing, another trend that comes and goes throughout human history that we have seen. What is new Israel and should we be bothered with it? 
Should you and I crave to be part of new Israel at all? That's the question. So let's begin. Today's passage is a very short passage, so short that we can finish reading it in a minute. And you must be wondering how long the sermon can possibly last, isn't it? We'll see, okay? We'll see. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 6. Let's read verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the sermon to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, this is a very short and familiar passage, as I've said, and it can seem rather insignificant passage. But did you know that this passage is, in fact, the big turning point in the gospel, if not the big turning point in human history? Let me show you why. Look with me again at verse 12. Can you tell me when did Jesus go to the mountain to pray? When did Jesus choose the twelve? When? Well, according to the text, it was in these days. Very clear, isn't it? In these days, he went out to pray. In these days, he called. In these days. But what are these days? Well, it must be the days in which Luke has just been talking about, isn't it? These days of verse 11. Let's take a look. Verse 11, it says, But they, referring to the Jews, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So what does these days refer to? It refers to a time when Jesus was facing great opposition. Days of great conflict between Jesus and and the religious Jews. At least three fights have already taken place between them. And Luke recorded all the fights for us in 553 to 611. Let's take a look at these fights. Fights are always interesting. Yeah? So firstly, we see a conflict between Jesus and the Jews over fasting. Reading from verse 33, And they said, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does... He will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skin. If he does, the new wine will burst the skin, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wine skin, and no one, after drinking old wine, desire new. 
for he says the O is good. Second fight, Jesus was accused of being unlawful on the Sabbath. 6-1, let's see what happens here. On the Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of the grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is, un- what is not lawful to do on Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man, as me, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Clash again. Third clash, the last clash. It concerns Jesus healing on the Sabbath. 6 verse 6 says, On the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Basically, basically the Jews were finding Jesus annoying, intolerable, and a pain. Everything that he does, what he does and what he says, they can't tolerate him. They get angry with him. Jesus boldly claims that true religion must focus on him and him alone. And Jesus claims that he's entitled to decide what is lawful and what is not lawful on Sabbath. So obviously, the religious Jews actively plotted against him. Now, it is in such days of Jewish opposition that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. It was in such days of Jewish rejection and threat that Jesus chose the truth. Now that we have worked out what these days referring to, have we figured out what this passage is a turning point? Not quite, isn't it? Let's read on. 6.13 says, And when they came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve. Not eleven, not thirteen. Not lucky number seven or lucky eight for the Chinese, but trough. Why trough? Jesus didn't give any explanation for this number at all. But let me show you Genesis 49. Turn with me to Genesis 49. Very easy to find, the first book of the Bible. Before we read, I want you to take note that 
the name Jacob and the name Israel mentioned here is the same person. God renamed Jacob to Israel in Genesis 32. 49 verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then from verse 3 onwards, Jacob went on to address all his sons in turn. Verse 3, Reuben. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi. Verse 8, Judah. Verse 13, Zebulun. Verse 14, Iskasha, Ishakah. Verse 16, Dan. Verse 19, Geb. Verse 20, Asher. Verse 21, Nathalie. Verse 22, Joseph. Verse 27, Benjamin. In total, there are 12 sons altogether. And Jacob ended off by saying in verse 28, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. 12, right? So we have 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus chose 12 disciples to be his apostles. What could be the relationship and what could be the significance? Well, the 12 tribes of Israel basically became the nation Israel. Essentially, they were the exclusive chosen people of God in the Old Testament. No other nations but them who are the chosen people. The Jews in Jesus' day identify themselves with God's people. They are the people of God. For they were part of the nation of Israel. They were from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. And the Jews in Jesus' days take great pride in this. For they knew that their fathers were the recipients of God's promises. Promises to Abraham that were read to us in the Old Testament passage, Genesis 12, and promises to King David. God will bless them. The whole world will be blessed through them. God's Messiah, the descendant of David, to rescue Israel from exile and to rescue humanity from the fall will come through them. So of all the people of the earth, God chose Israel. They are chosen people. Then in the New Testament, what happens next? We saw Jesus came. By words and by deeds, with great power and authority, casting out demons and casting out illnesses, Jesus clearly demonstrated that he was God's Messiah that God spoke about. Right from the beginning at his birth, God made it very clear that this is my son. God even sent John the Baptist for the Jews to prepare them for Jesus' arrival. John the Baptist warned Israel the coming of God's wrath for their sins. He urged them to repent. Jesus engaged the Jews. He taught them in their synagogues in the first half of Luke. We see it over and over again. Now, let me ask you, how have we seen the Jews today, as in, in the passage, who are the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, who are the exclusive chosen people of God, respond to the Messiah Jesus? How did they respond? Only Jake is shaking his head. It's not good, isn't it? Rejected him in the face. Exactly, that's what they did. Now, with this context, read this passage again, just the first two verses, and tell me, if you are surprised by what Jesus did here. And see if you can guess what is it that Jesus is trying to do here by calling the twelve. 
Verse 12 says, chapter 6, Luke, back to Luke, chapter 6, verse 12 says, In these days, that is, these days of Jewish rejection and hostility, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. To pray all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when they came, he called his disciples. That is, all who have been listening to him and following him, unlike the Jews. And he chose from them twelve, whom he named the apostles. Do you see a turning point here of what's happening? The point is this. If the Jews do not accept Jesus on his own terms, if they don't receive Jesus as the bridegroom that is God's chosen Messiah, if they don't submit to Jesus' clearly demonstrated power and authority, if they do not accept this new wineskin, this new kingdom which is centered on Jesus that he alone is bringing, if the chosen, the privileged Israel, people of God, reject the Messianic Savior and King Jesus, then Jesus will create a new people of God. A new Israel who will accept what God is doing. The promises God made to Abraham and David are irrevocable. He is faithful God and he will fulfill what he promised. So if the nation Israel was not to inherit them, then someone else must and someone else will. So in the face of Jewish rejection, Jesus begins to reconstitute Israel by calling the 12 apostles. That is, he begins to form new Israel. Actually, by the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 3 and 4, if you take a look, it was already very clear that only those who are righteous who will benefit from God's promises. The nation Israel has been far from being righteous throughout the entire Old Testament. They sin again and again. They reject God. God forgave again and again, giving them opportunity to live righteously. But their sin simply never stopped. In fact, their sin and rejection of God climax in the New Testament that we will read of in later in Luke, when Israel not only rejected, but they killed God's own son. In the face of Jewish rejection, Jesus reconstituted Israel around the 12 apostles. In the gospel, Jesus taught that new Israel comprises of those who share Abraham's faith rather than those who share Abraham's genes. For the righteous comes only, for righteousness comes only by faith in God, like the faith of Abraham. In other words, it's not the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, but the spiritual descendants who will part of new Israel that he's forming. Those who put their faith in God, in Jesus, trusting him as their savior, trusting him as their king, him as their king. So for three years, Jesus taught and trained these apostles, minus Judas and Eusmatias preparing them for his departure, equipping them to be the foundation of his church, that is, new Israel. Through his spirit, working in them, Jesus will call many others into new Israel. Christians gathered here this morning 
is part of that work that Jesus has gathered people to himself by the Spirit into new Israel. The work of Christ gathering people in this church, new Israel. Now, nation Israel has failed to enjoy God's blessing because they sin. We saw that, right? The question is, would a new Israel, Christians, continue to sin just as they did? Sadly, the answer is yes, isn't it? So the natural question would be, so wouldn't our sin similarly prevent us from inheriting God's promises? And the answer is yes. Unless the problem of sin is dealt with. Sin is mankind's greatest and biggest problem, our greatest unbeatable, uncontrollable, unsolvable problem. And Jesus has come to deal with that problem of sin. Earlier in chapter 5, Jesus healed the paralytic and forgave him of his sins. He came and he ate with tax collectors, with sinners. He said that they are why he came, to call sinners to repentance. So because Jesus has dealt with our problem of sin once for all, Christians, new Israel, can and will inherit God's promises. So let me start with the question that I asked earlier. Should I crave, should we crave to be part of new Israel? Should we crave to be part of the church? Let me read to you from this book, not the literate book that some in the older generation know what it is, but it's a big book. Let me read to you from what what Tim Savage writes about new Israel, about the church, about God's new people. He said this. The church, or new Israel, is the most strategic body of people on the face of the planet. Through its ministries, vast tracts of humanity are rescued from evil and lifted from despair. And by its voice, new life is proclaimed to entire civilizations. It is an association of people who pump and roar with the glory of God. What human gathering could possibly warrant such a strong praise and honor? Only one qualifies, the Church of Jesus Christ. Few Christians are aware of the explosive nature of the church to which they belong. Many of us here, isn't it? Several years ago, when transporting the English judgeman John Stott to the place where he was preaching, I asked him what he thought was the most neglected doctrine among contemporary Christians. Supposing he would say theology, our view of God is too small, or possibly soteriology, our matters of salvation were too self-reliant. I was surprised to hear him reply without hesitation, ecclesiology, which is the church. To me, the doctrine of church seemed peripheral to other more weighty doctrines and suddenly not worthy of the statue of my interlocutor ascribed to it. But in the years since, my ref- after reflection on biblical teaching of the church, I've come to see otherwise. The church of Jesus Christ is the locus of God's plan for creation. The church of Jesus Christ is the locus of God's plan for creation. According to the Bible, God is executing a plan, 
a plan of cosmic dimensions. He is in the process of reclaiming all things for his glory. Believers in Ephesus, the Apostles Paul, to the believers in Ephesus, Apostle Paul makes a stunning observation. God is summing up all things in heaven and things on earth under one head, namely Christ. Precisely where this comprehensive summation is taking place, Paul makes it very clear in the few verses later. God has given Christ as the head over all things that is the church. To the church. Remarkably, the church is ground zero in God's ambitious reclamation project of the entire world. It is home base for the execution of God's work in the world the place where all things are being drawn together under Christ. If you want to see what God is doing on this planet, and who would want to miss something so spectacular? We must look to the church, New Israel. Here and only here, we find a people drawn together and filled with all the fullness of God. New Israel, the church, is the amazing thing that God is doing in this world. And here we have example of it as God's church. Should you crave to be part of new Israel? Should you crave or should I and you crave to be part of new Israel? The answer is too obvious, isn't it? Far too obvious. I think there are three groups of people here that this message will apply to. There might be more. But first group, I think there will be a group of us here who assume, who are currently very clear that you are not part of new Israel. You know that you are not part of the church. You might be indifferent to be part of new Israel. You yearn and you long to be part of the various clubs and various organizations and movements that this world offers. But you are indifferent to being part of new Israel that we saw Jesus forming today, in today's passage. God's word to you today would be, you better crave, you better long to be part of new Israel because this is not just another small little movement that will come and go. It is a movement that God is doing through Jesus, through his church, to sum up all things in the universe, to restore all things, to clean up the mess that our world is in. And Christ has done that on the cross. A second group will be those who assume that we are part of new Israel. You might be those who have always craved to be part of this Christian club because it's attractive, but you have no faith in Christ. You have no trust. There is no obedience to him as your savior or your Lord. There is no love for a saviour and your Lord. To this group of people, again be warned, there is only one true new Israel. And the way to be in this Israel is only true Christ, trusting and believing in him. Well, the last group of people that I thought of would be those who have lost the amazement of being part of new Israel. We have been in the church for a while. We have been part of new Israel. We have been converted for a long time. But we have lost the amazement that we are, big, we are part of this big thing that God is doing. 
We may be amazed, we may be longing for, to be part of Harvard or Oxford, to be part of the big five, to be in the big companies, but we are not amazed. So I think today's passage reminds me and reminds us to recognize again this huge turning point in history when your destiny and my destiny change forever. We could be counted among God's people. We can be included by the blood of Christ into new Israel, his church. This movement, this circle, is one that you cannot afford not to be crave, to be craving to be part of in your life. Without this, you have no life, for your life brings no honor, no glory to God at all. It is what God has done in Christ for us that we can be part of new Israel. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what Christ has done. We thank you that you sent your Messiah into the world, your only son, just as you have foretold, just as you have promised. We, think, we take comfort this morning, Father, in the truth that you are indeed a, a trustworthy God. You are a promise-keeping God. And we thank you, Father, that when Jesus came, he clearly demonstrated uh, in the words and in his deeds with great authority and with great power that he is indeed the Messiah. He is the one through whom you will reconstitute true Israel, a people of God, righteous people who live under your rule just as you have made people to be. And we thank you, Father, that Jesus, through his death and resurrection on the cross, has achieved that for us. And by faith, we can now be counted among new Israel. And we, we pray for ourselves, Father, as a church in Smack One. We pray that we will be those who, who will shine in this place, that you, in this country that you have placed in, us into, in this society, that we will be those who bring this good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to those around us. We will be those who point, the pe- point people around us, maybe in the workplace or in our neighborhoods, to this new Israel that we can enter in by faith. That we will point people to the great joy that Jesus has brought for he has reconciled us to you. He has brought peace to this earth. And we commit ourselves as a church into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.